The 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games started a year late, in July 2021. The COVID pandemic meant the Games had to be postponed last year. And despite the fact that they are now going ahead, increasing concerns over crowd gatherings turning into super-spreader events means that the athletes will be competing and performing without a live audience. The stadiums will be empty. But even without live spectators, the Olympic Games will be watched by millions of people around the world. So what is it that gives many of us such a pleasure to watch athletes perform at the peak of their game? Is the pointlessness of sport, the absence of any real consequence, part of the reason we enjoy it? Is the ferociously competitive nature of sport, with winners and losers, sometimes separated by only milliseconds apart, a good model for life itself? And most importantly of all, why is parkour not a sport? Welcome to The Philosopher in the News. I'm Alexis Papazopoulou. This week, I'm delighted to have as my guest Stephen Mumford. He is a professor of philosophy at the University of Durham, and although a metaphysics specialist, studying the most general features of existence, he is also one of the most prolific philosophers of sport, and author of three books on the subject, Watching Sport, Aesthetics, Ethics and Emotion, Football, The Philosophy Behind the Game, and more recently, A Philosopher Looks at Sport. I couldn't really think of a better person to talk to about the spectacle that will be watched by millions across the world in the coming weeks, the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games. So, Stephen Mumford, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So, it's only been a few days since sporting events have been allowed to go ahead again in the UK after a year and a half or so. Mm. You're a big football fan um, who likes going to the stadium and watching games live. What was the last year of watching football on TV without spectators in the stadium like? Not very good for me personally. I'm actually not that keen on watching football on television. For me, it's the whole match day experience, the journey there and seeing old friends that you, you sit near. Mm. So, I mean, I've watched some games, but seems a poor substitute, especially when these media companies are making you pay ridiculously high subscription rates to see games. So, yeah, that's that's not been good. I've been aching to get back while also realising that it's it's not going to be the safest environment to return to at the moment. Mm. Yeah, and speaking of safety and COVID and all of that, the 2020 Olympic Games are about to go ahead in Tokyo. They were cancelled last year, obviously, due to COVID. And a lot of people are still apprehensive about them going ahead, not least the citizens of Japan. Mm. But they are going ahead without any spectators present in the stadiums again. And that will obviously you know, have some impact on the atmosphere in the stadium. Mm. But does it go beyond that? Is an audience somewhat more integral to the very nature of competitive sport? Yes, I think it is. I mean, there's some obvious things that the athletes themselves say that they enjoy playing in front of a crowd and that it produces better performances Mm. and I can believe there's something in that but I think there's also something about the viewing experience so given what I was just saying about watching on TV of course when we were asked to pay to watch football it was to watch football played in a completely empty stadium and I think that obviously detracts from the spectacle right you know so I think one, one reason we like to watch sport is for that spectacle it would be like if you went to the theatre and were the only audience member, you know, if you if you add it to yourself. So <laughs> I think we're not just sort of viewing a competitive encounter on the pitch. We're, we're going for a whole immersive experience. Another thing is the kind of infectious excitement that you can have at a sporting event. So, you know, you could be watching something quite exciting going on on the field, 
but it's also you're feeding off other people's excitement. Uh, it's sort of that collective experience. So mm. I think that the spectatorship makes the sport in uh, many senses, actually. I think it hugely contributes to what the sport itself actually is. It's, it's not just sort of some optional, additional factor. I think it's part of the whole package that we find attractive. Mm. Interesting. And I was going to ask you a question about what exactly it is that we find so attractive about <laughs> watching sport as, as spectators. So you open your book talking about the pleasures of playing sport, and we'll come to that from, as it were, the first person perspective. But there is also this big aspect of sport as, as a spectacle and the pleasures that come with that. So what is it that we enjoy when we you know, enjoy watching live sport? As you indicated earlier, it isn't just about what's going on in the mm. in the stadium and the field. It's it's something about the sort of sociality of the event and and all sorts of other things going on. Yeah, I'm not a sociologist of sport or a historian of sport. You know, I I am just a philosopher. But there is a bit I understand about how sport has evolved, and it kind of evolved hand in hand with the opportunities for its commercial exploitation. We've always had games, we've always had physical activities, but it's only in the last couple of hundred years that an actual concept of sport has evolved. And sport's always been something that was sellable. Initially, it'd just be paying spectators coming to watch something, but then sport really developed hand-in-hand with the media. There's a symbiotic relationship between the sport and media. Mm. So if if you look at the elite level, Premier League of football, I think the last figure I saw was 59% of income is coming from broadcasting rights and another 26% is coming from commercial activities associated with media profile. Mm. So... It's the media and sport hand in hand, I think, have developed something that has an aesthetic appeal to us. Mm. But I think an aesthetic appeal in a very broad sense, it's kind of selling as an experience, an immersive, exciting experience for some. But it's a very broad appeal. There could be some purists who like to watch gymnastics just for the, the, the pure art of it. So... I think you have to understand sport in that context. So sport without spectators, I think it, it, it wouldn't look anything mm-hmm. uh, like it looks now. In, in fact, I'm not sure there would even be such a thing as sport. They could be recreational activities. You know, people want to keep fit. They might enjoy playing against each other for fun and excitement. But I'm not sure it would be this sort of modern notion of professionalized sport that we have. Yeah, interesting. You also talk about the sort of pleasures of enjoying this kind of physical activity vicariously through watching other people and, mm. you know, exercise their physical capacities and, and so on. So what what's going on there? Are we really sort of imagining ourselves in their position in their place how exactly does that work there could be some of that yeah i mean when i've been at sport i've had a sense of that so say if a ball is played in front of goal and a striker is is reaching to try and head it and score a goal if you look around you you will see so many people lunging out of their seat almost trying to make the header for them <laughs> and I've done it myself. I feel myself stretching to try and get the ball to score a goal. So it's, it, I think we sort of physically become involved in the game. But I, I think there's also something a bit deeper than that as well. So I think this goes on to one of the things I think sport is about and the physicality is about, which is that I think on the whole, for the most part, we find it, pleasurable to exercise our physical capacities and to exercise them to the maximum potential as well Mm -hmm. so there's no particular reason why you might want to jump over a high bar (laughs) it's usually going to be much easier to walk under it if, (laughs) if the point were to get to the other side so we're doing pointless things like jumping over very high bars and and why is that a pleasure to do so I'm setting aside any kind of 
fame and wealth that comes from professional sport because I think the explanation of sport has to go back before all that started. And so I think one of the explanations is we just it is pleasurable to sort of exercise our physical capacities. So it might be pleasurable to jump over a bar that's one metre high, but I think it's even more pleasurable if you can go a few centimetres higher than that and, and so on and so forth. Hmm. The interesting thing then, which uh, you know, I tried to explore a bit in the book, but I'm sure I didn't quite get to the end of it, <laughs> is why it's then also pleasurable to watch other people exercise their capacities. Hmm. If it's not me exercising mine, why does it interest me that someone else can jump over a very high bar or someone else can run 100 metres in less than 10 seconds when it's not me? And I, I don't know if I've got a satisfactory answer to that. I, th- I think it is the case that we find that pleasurable and, and maybe it's something to do with our common sense, our shared humanity, that we're interested in what human beings are, are actually capable of or the, the greatest that they're capable of, the fastest, the highest, the strongest that they're capable of. And it might be that that tells me something about myself, right? even though it's not me doing that. The shared experience we have as rational embodied agents. So I think that could be part of the excitement. Mm, Yeah, you've touched on a lot of big questions and issues there that I want to come back to. But let's finish this kind of segment on on the spectator side, as it were. So I think I, I agree with you about a lot of this. You know, there is an aesthetic component to watching sport and this line that you're exploring about the sort of vicarious pleasure of enjoying our kind of human physicality is also is also very interesting and kind of fascinating. But I think it's also fair to say that a lot of people that watch sport don't do it for the, you know, aesthetic reasons. They do it for partisan reasons. They watch because they are cheering on a team or they're cheering on a nation. I'm sure lots of people who had never watched football before were watching the final of uh, the Euros uh, when England was playing um, a couple of weeks ago. And that feature of sport is often seen as kind of a negative, right? Promoting pointless tribalism often tied with nationalism in quite nasty ways. And it also seems kind of absurd (laughs) to become so vested in the performance of a complete stranger to whose victory or defeat you played, you know, absolutely no role in. (laughs) I'm Greek and I grew up in Greece and, you know, Yanis Adetokounmpo won MVP in the NBA finals the other day. And many Greeks were, you know, posting on social media about how proud they felt about him. You know, his personal story is is incredible and it's an enormous achievement. And, you know, he's an incredible human being. But, you know, what do Greeks have to do with it? And why should they feel proud about his his achievement? So can you say a little bit about all that sort of aspect of spectatorship? Why do people get so hooked up in supporting teams, be they (laughs) regional, national? And is that a good thing? Well, I I think it can be harmless and fun, but I'm not denying that it, it has an unpleasant dimension to it as well. So when I first started working in philosophy of sport, I was very much trying to sort of defend sport as a sort of worthwhile pursuit. But over time, I've also come to see the kind of disturbing, unpleasant side of of sport. I think there are a lot of negatives to it. And you're absolutely right. There's no doubt that partisanship uh, can get out of hand and turn into nationalism and violence so that there is definitely that unpleasant side to it as as i think there is in lots of aspects of of sport maybe we'll come on to some of those other unpleasant aspects i don't know but i I think there's other things that we can we can say about it i mean so one aspect of it is is what people in philosophy of sport sometimes call it berging which is an acronym for basking in reflected glory. So I, th- I suspect a lot of your compatriots were berging when they were just so pleased. The, I guess the feeling is, you know, this athlete is Greek and, and you're Greek, so it reflects on you somehow in some limited way. It says something about how great your country is and you're part of that country, so it says something very, very slight, but it says something about your greatness. That's the sort of simple... Berging that I think goes on. 
but I, I think there's there's other aspects to it as well. I mean, it, it you're right that it kind of seems quite irrational and random that you can sort of form a relationship with a football club, for instance, and they don't know anything about you. They might not even know that you exist. And it's often quite a random reason why you support them in the first place. It could just be because they're from the town you were born in. Or in my own case, I had a friend asked if I wanted to go to the game with him and I've been supporting that team ever since. And so it seems that there is that kind of random aspect. But then again, I think if you consider any kind of meaningful relationship that we have in life, it's it's often got some random element that initiated that, you know, so... I'm married to someone with whom I've been for many years, and it, and of course it was a chance meeting. It's, it's you know it's going to be some chance meeting in some random place, and then a relationship gets formed. Similarly with friends and colleagues. That so I think that the fact that there's some accidental basis for this relationship doesn't necessarily mean that it's irrational, because then we can go on to consider what's gained from having that relationship. Now, one thing in the case of sports that people find irrational is is the idea that it, it's very kind of one way. It's a, a one-way relationship. You love your team or your national team, or, uh, but they barely know that you exist. Which maybe can be a bit over-exaggerated because a lot of the players will often say they're doing it to make people happy. The, the, the people that they know support them, they, they want to do it f- for their supporters. And I can accept that. But e- even assuming that that wasn't the case, I still don't see that it, it means it is irrational. Having a kind of one-way asymmetrical relationship isn't automatically a bad thing so i think we we often have a model of love for instance that's that's very sort of transactional it's like uh you know i give you something because i'm gonna get something back whereas um maybe uh pure purer form of love is to sort of love unconditionally and not not necessarily expect anything in return it's nice if you get it, but it's it's not that kind of transactional basis. And I think that's that's not a bad idea of love, actually. So, yeah, I, I enter into a loving relationship with my team, and that actually does something for me. It's good for me to give love. And as you say, these relationships are a lot more stable than, than some human relationships, even when it comes to spouses. You know, they can last a lifetime when you know marriages end and friendships end and you know all of our other you know that's right a lot of people point that out i mean in in the uk the average marriage lasts 10 years i think so yeah many people will find that this relationship to a sporting club is the longest lasting relationship of their life so i yeah i think that there can be some negative aspects to sports spectatorship there can be some destructive sides to it i think when it turns into hatred for the opposition so i actually don't like that at all even though i'm a you know football fan and i have my team i like most of the teams as well and can appreciate what they do i know because i'm a philosopher i'm not going to be representative of all football fans but yeah i see that as a a negative and an irrationality i mean i think you you also have to look at the the health of the sport as a whole as well you know so one thing that was unpleasant about when six of the top clubs in UK, well, in England, wanted to break away to form a Super League is that they, they were kind of not acknowledging that their success had occurred within an, an enabling environment. And you can't just assume that you can jettison that environment and still have all that success. So I'm pleased. I enjoy my sport and I'm glad that the sport is healthy. I'm glad that there's lots of other clubs flourishing who will give my team a good game, for instance. Reductio is a podcast that explores the ideas of philosophy, sort of like programs like Radiolab and Visibilia and Reply All explore science and technology. 
It has stories, philosophy, music, poetry, and lots of fun thought experiments. We've done episodes on flat earthism, dog whistles, ghosts, transporters, co-ops, and freak bikes. What do all these things have to do with philosophy? Well, listen and find out. Find us wherever you get your podcasts by searching Reductio, which is just the word reduction without the end at the end of the word. Brought to you by Inverted Spectrum Media. Should we talk a little bit about the sort of first person perspective when it comes to sport? You mentioned earlier it's a form of enjoying our kind of physical nature and, you know, interesting that you recognize that as a philosopher, given that obviously philosophy is a lot more about sort of the mental and, you know, our kind of mental capacities. Obviously, this is true even of, you know, a lot of people's work these days, you know, our bodies in the knowledge economy sort of aren't quite as important a lot of the time. It's more about what we can do with our with our minds and our heads, as it were. So on the other hand, you touched on this very interesting kind of aspect of the slightly kind of absurd nature of, of, of you know, sport and it being a slightly kind of pointless activity, you know, seeing who can throw a heavy ball the furthest or who can run a short distance the fastest, who can jump the highest. When we put it like that, it almost sounds a bit sort of childish, like it's children playing games with each other. Do you think this is a, an enduring aspect of, of sport, this kind of childlike nature of it? Or does the kind of really professional competitive nature of it, you know, kind of zap that out of it? I think it's essential to sport. So the, the best book, I think, that was ever written in philosophy of sport is Bernard Suit's book, The Grasshopper, which starts off as if it's it's about Aesop's fable about the the grasshopper who instead of working hard to uh, have some food ready for the winter the grasshopper spends all day playing and in in the fable you're supposed to think that the grasshopper is stupid because then he uh, starves to death when the winter comes now Bernard Suits's book is a defense of the grasshopper against Aesop so it's what Suits is getting at is the fact that the goals in sport are so pointless, they're kind of artificial, it, it shows what's truly important to us, what, what has intrinsic value for us. So Suits asks us to imagine a world where all our needs are met, all our sort of practical needs are met. We've got no shortage of food, we've got no shortage of anything that keeps us safe and comfortable. So what do we then do with our lives? And he concludes, and I'd, I would defend him to a large extent, he concludes we would spend all our time doing philosophy and playing games. And he, he sees that these are the things that have true meaning to us. So you would only criticise the grasshopper because there are bad things in the world, such as famines and uh, dangers, you know, so... That's the only reason Aesop can say, ah, oh, told you so, you, you silly grasshopper. But but really, the grasshopper's doing what has intrinsic value. And then Suits relates this also to the death of Socrates. Socrates thought that doing philosophy had intrinsic value. And we know from Plato's writings that the, the night before Socrates had to drink hemlock, his followers had found a way for him to escape. He could, he, They could escape and go into exile and he'd be safe. And, and Socrates doesn't take this way out because he, he wants to be true to himself. And he says if, if he can't do what he's doing, discussing philosophy with the Athenians, then he might as well be dead anyway. So Bernard Suits, The Grasshopper, brilliant book, also brings in Wittgenstein. And, and because he thinks that Game playing is basically, he defines it, a voluntary attempt to overcome unnecessary obstacles. He thinks that's, that's what's going on. So the bar that you have to jump over in high jump, you know, it's, it's an unnecessary obstacle because you could just walk to the other side if, if you wanted to get to the other side. It's easier to walk under the bar than jump over it. But you, you accept the unnecessary obstacle as a condition of playing the game. So you jump over it in order that we can play the game. 
so I think this is what's going on in, in sport. So it's full of these pointless things. It doesn't matter whether the tiny ball goes in the golf hole, really. Not, not, it does, it's not a matter of life and death. But it enables uh, the playing of a game. And if the point was, if it was that important to get the ball in the hole, the easiest way would be to just pick it up and put it in the hole. But instead, we we favour inefficient and difficult means to achieve that goal so that it, it enables the possibility of us playing a game. It's really interesting. It's a kind of argument for saying that what kind of gives life its meaning or what what is ultimately, you know, the thing that makes life pleasurable once everything else is met are kind of slightly pointless activities like playing games <laughs> or maybe philosophizing. Although I don't know if Socrates thought philosophizing was pointless. I think he, he thought it was quite, you know, the stakes were quite high, as it were. If you didn't philosophize, your life would be without meaning, pointless in a way. So maybe that makes playing games really, really important in the other hand. <laughs> the stakes are high. If you can't enjoy it, then then your life would be sort of without without that kind of intrinsic value. Yeah, well, it's, it's definitely intrinsic. Of course, so with professionalised sport, you can now get rich playing sport. But that's just the, the elite end. I don't think that really tells you about the, the kind of central place in our lives that uh, game playing can can have. The other thing at the start of your question, you, you moved on a bit, was was this about abilities, our, our physical abilities and capacities? Well, my background before I started doing philosophy of sport was in metaphysics, and I work on capacities, dispositions, causal powers, and so on. So I think there's a nice connection between that kind of metaphysics and this view of human embodiment. So that, that might explain why... I'm more open to sort of philosophy of embodiment than just philosophy of mind. Of course, philosophy of mind is huge and has a huge history, whereas philosophers, have, have, as you suggest, have talked a lot less about embodiment. But it's why I'm interested in capacities, abilities, liabilities, and so on. Mm. Yeah, I mean, is that part of what, again, sort of gives us a thrill about sport, is that we see humans do things that we never thought were possible or that we ourselves are... <laughs> for the most part, incapable of doing, right? When, especially when we're watching elite ath- athletes. Maybe, you know, we're going to be watching the Olympics in the coming weeks. I mean, some of the things they do are obviously were impossible even, you know, for athletes a few years ago because the records are kept getting broken and, you know, where people push their bodies more and more uh, to higher extremes. So is that is that, you think, also part of the kind of amazement of watching sport? I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're fascinated by the thought of how far the human body can go. Um, I think we're we're really interested in optimum performance of an ability. So when when some athletes talk about being in the zone, uh, I think that's what they they mean. It's they're, so they're performing their ability to its maximum. Uh, which we know requires a, a sort of full immersion in performance of that capacity. Of course, it's not only in sport that you can do this. Uh, there's times I've had when I've been writing philosophy, you know, and you might just suddenly realise, oh, I've, I'm really in the zone now. Of course, that's the point at which you you leave the zone, because, yeah, you because break the spell by like, becoming conscious spell, of it. Yeah, and I think that's because when you're in the zone, uh, you're entirely focused on the performance of that ability. And if, and if I have a higher order thought about, oh, aren't I doing really well? Then part of my attention is not focused on the performance of the, the ability. It's, it's focused on the thought about the ability. So I think it's about that complete immersion and and that's the point at which athletes or other people feel that they're performing to the maximum of their ability. Phenomenologists like sort of Merleau-Ponty and then people that have been writing commentaries on this sort of stuff focus on this kind of aspect that you've been talking about that when, you know, when we're doing something at the best of our ability, especially something physical, when maybe it's playing a sport or sometimes it's playing a musical instrument, 
we're not really thinking about it. We're not really following rules or we're not really, you know, taking steps in our mind about what we should do and then kind of execute it. It's sort of a lot more fluid than that. So do you think that sort of phenomenon gives us some insights into kind of human rationality or just or just how our minds work um, more broadly and moving away from this model of, you know, rational thought is coming up with some ideas and then it's kind of a matter of executing them in the world. Mm, I do. I mean, I'm, I'm not a trained phenomenologist, so I'm not going to claim any expertise, though I do know, of course, Meloponti is the philosopher for embodiment. But... Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly been my own experience, if I'm just going to reflect on my own phenomenology. I mean, I, I, I've uh, I've never been that great a footballer, for instance, but there have been times when I've, I've been playing in quite a, quite a good game at a high level when I've there's a particular move I suddenly did for the first time where I sort of trapped the ball under my foot, dragged it back and passed out the other side. And when I first did it, I thought, where did that come from? So it wasn't planned. So I, I, I take your point about sort of this rational model of agency, for instance. It's not as if I formed an intention that I was going to perform this particular move at this time. My whole being was completely immersed in the performance of that ability. So I did it and I felt quite pleased with myself. But I also felt a bit detached from it because I thought, well, was that even me? You know, I, I didn't have a plan for it to happen. There was no conscious intention. And I and I think that that's often what happens. So say if I give a good lecture in philosophy, you know, I'll sometimes feel very pleased with myself. But I'm also thinking... I don't know exactly where that came from, but it, it, it was clearly for some time I was in the zone there. <laughs> Same with musical instruments, absolutely. So may, maybe it's also something to do with this notion of automaticity, which I'm also quite interested in because I've, I've also done lots of work on free will and agency, which, of course, absolutely central in conception of sport. But one view of free will that I'm not so keen on is a, an overly rationalised model where, you know, I make a decision to step to the left or to the right and it's conscious and then this is a volition and then that causes my action. But I think sometimes we're, we're at our freest when we have automated our actions and, and don't think about them at all. The reason I say it's that we're at our freest, suppose I'm going swimming with a friend who's a better swimmer than me, and we both do some backstroke. Now, I'm, I'm a bit of a novice with backstroke, so I'm having to think about everything I do. I'm having to think, are my legs moving right? Are, are my arms in sync? Whereas the expert can probably do it without thinking, so they're just sailing down the lane maybe thinking what they're going to have for dinner that night or something. They don't have to focus on their actions at all. Having to focus on your actions is when it's difficult, I would have thought, play, playing a musical instrument, for instance. If I'm having to stop and think what I'm doing, I'm not going to be that good. We touched earlier on the sort of competitive aspects of being in sport and playing sport. And here I want to ask a kind of wider question about whether sport teaches us anything about life more broadly or whether it's this kind of separate corner of existence that doesn't really relate much to anything else. And, you know, in sport, there are obviously, you know, winners and losers. And in some sports, like in the Olympic Games, the winner might be only, you know, half a millisecond faster than the person who comes second. The difference between winning and losing are, you know, really minute. So, to the extent to which you can say that one is a better athlete than the other is, you know, gets quite blurry. Mm. But people obviously think of life as a competition sometimes or, or as a game um, and sort of model it on, on this kind of, um, on how sport works. And do you think the analogy holds and, you know, should we think of life as a competition along the lines of sport? Well, actually, I hope not. Mm. So there's, there's quite a lot to unpack in your question. So philosopher of sport called John Russell formulated this distinction between a, a separation thesis and a continuity thesis. So the continuity thesis is that the ethics of sport are continuous with ethics of wider life. So just as we believe 
things should be fair, say, in a job interview. We also have a concept of fairness that we've taken from life and put into sport. So we think sport should be fair. Similarly, there's some ideas we take from sport, like the idea of a level playing field seems mm-hmm. like a sporting metaphor, and then we can apply that into wider life. Mm. Or breaking rules and being punished, right? I mean, getting yeah. penalised for breaking the rules, which often doesn't happen in real life. Yeah, so that's continuity thesis. But there's also some people who prefer a separation thesis, which says that sport is a kind of closed-off section of life it's a kind of form of social practice in which we jettison ethical rules ordinary norms that we'd live our life by and we have a a distinct set of norms that apply and sometimes there's even a physical boundary that marks off that separation so now i've given some examples there to illustrate this kind of separations thesis but Overall, I prefer the continuity thesis because I I think the boundaries between sport and wider life are are, are, are quite porous. Uh, So, yeah, there there are certain things you can do in the sport that you shouldn't do outside of sport. But I also think that uh, inevitably, you know, sport itself was, was a social practice that we have created. And in doing so, we have taken some of the norms from wider life and and we like to see how they play out in a competitive environment but then it also gives gives something back there are lessons that we can learn from sport you know so so we can see how hard work and dedication you know they're, they're going to pay off and there's there's lessons that we can learn from that that we can apply to wider life but Another aspect of what you were saying was, though, about competitive competitiveness, competition. Does this prove that we live in a competitive world and we've maybe just created sport as a magnification of that and we, we enjoy seeing people fighting to the death? Or, Well, I'm, I'm not so sure about that because, well, first of all, that, that's not the world I would want where it, it was a you know, competition of all against all sounds a bit like Hobbes who I've, I've been uh, reading in the last couple of weeks where everybody else is your enemy I mean another lesson you can take from sport is how cooperation is the way to develop our capacities to their maximum so there's cooperation of course in team sports there is an othering of the other side but there is also working together to achieve something together that we couldn't achieve alone you know i'm i'm just one person i i need 10 teammates to actually play a proper game of football and on my own i can't make a pass or a cross that has to involve another person who receives the pass or heads heads the cross in it's a a collaborative venture and of course not all sports are team sports but then again, we know that in individual sports, success is built on being part of a team with coaching and support staff and other athletes who, who help us. So I, I see it mainly about that endeavour to maximise capabilities. And, and I think that that's always going to be something that's done together so i think you sport is so complex you you can read into it you could you could just focus on that competitive side and the othering but i think you can take the other message from it that it it, it proves that collaboration and cooperation work so it's it's complex like the society that created it the society that created it it has parts that are competitive but you know I'm, i'm quite happy to say that human interactions also involve collaboration and cooperation Mm. and we clearly kind of recognize a sort of ethical dimension to playing sport because we have this tendency to see the best sportsmen and sportswomen as kind of role models and we look up to them in ways that you know as paradigms of virtue almost in ways that we wouldn't with you know the best lawyers say or even the best artists don't usually think of them as sort of examples, exemplars of virtue. So why do you think that is? I mean, is it because of the kind of ethical dimensions of actually playing the game? Is it to do with a kind of hangover of a kind of ascetic ideal, this idea that, you know, self-denial, that the amount of training, brutal training that goes into it, this kind of absolute dedication and focus on one goal, somehow makes you ethically pure and and good what's what's going on there 
Well, I think it could be those things that you've said, but but this is actually one instance where I think there is something quite wrong about sport. So I I certainly don't defend all aspects of it. I mean, I, I think it puts an unfair burden on athletes to expect them to be role models in any kind of broad sense. What you said in your question is right, that these are people who have sort of dedicated themselves to achieving their goal. And there is something admirable about that. And there's something we can take from that. But I think when it comes to expectations on athletes being in a, an outstanding citizen, a, a moral paragon, this, this is too much of a burden to place on athletes. Often athletes, are, you know, they peak, they're, they're young people and they're also some of the people for whom it will be most difficult to be moral paragons insofar as they're sometimes rich and famous and have more temptations and opportunities to go astray. I think young people, like any young people, should be entitled to make mistakes, learn learn their own lessons in life and so on. So I do think this this is an unfair expectation. So I've written a few things in the past on athletes as role models and why I don't think uh, it's fair to have that expectation of them. Mm. On the other hand, they, I mean, recently, especially we have in the UK, as well as in the US, I guess, cases where they've they also become not role models in terms of themselves, but become conduits of kind of big ethical or uh, social justice kind of campaigns, right? Yeah. Anti-racism campaigns, both in the in the UK and the in the US. And again, it's something that somehow that kind of status that they have as as sort of athletes allows them to do that. Whereas you know the best. I don't know, insurance salesmen in the, in the, on the land started doing something similar. You know, no one would really notice and no one really, really care. Yeah, I mean, I also do find that problematic to an extent, though, uh, although not for the reason a lot of people seem to have found it problematic. So uh, in the first place, I, I would classify such acts as supererogatory. So supererogation is, is something you do where it's praiseworthy if you do it, but not necessarily blameworthy if you don't do it. So um, I don't think there should be any expectation on an athlete to do that. Uh, but if, if they do, then fair enough, we'll, we'll give them some uh, praise for doing so. However, another aspect of it that I also find uncomfortable and unfair is how it it often is going to place an additional burden on a particular kind of athlete and and what i'm talking about in 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 the sort of instances i think you're referring to is black athletes athletes have often encountered racism homophobia and so on you know we we have a kind of expectation a model of the perfect athlete as somebody white male heterosexual, cisgendered, and so on. Whereas I think sport is a human right and should be for all. And so it's then unfair if an athlete then has to take on the additional burden of countering the racism in our society. So, of course, Colin Kaepernick, the famous uh, American footballer who started taking the knee, he is now, of course, you know, a campaigner for social justice. But part of the reason for that is that no American football team would would give him a contract. So he can't now play. You know, great for him that he's got a contract with Nike and so on. But I suspect that this, this ultimately is a burden for him that athletes in other circumstances wouldn't have to bear. So I, I do see sort of problematic aspects to this just to say something more on this this idea of the role model is a white man, for instance. So I saw on Twitter uh, a week ago that somebody had done an analysis in, in the lead up to the Olympics, looking at the images that the official Olympics Twitter account was, was putting out since the start of July. And they, they found, I think it was something like 299 white athletes images of white athletes had been tweeted and only something like 15 black athletes you know so 
I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with this idea of there being a kind of role model, ideal, perfect athlete, because throughout history, we have seen that, but it, it is predominantly one kind of person. Yeah, it's very exclusive um, of others. You know. Yeah. Um, since you mentioned the Olympics, I've kept uh, the biggest and most fundamental question for last. Why isn't parkour a sport? <laughs> um, <laughs> you uh, you go into your book, you, you you tackle this big sort of philosophical question: what is you know what is sport? And you you start by tackling the question: what is a game? Because that is something that, as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, you know Wittgenstein talks about and. Famously, he has this argument about how, you know, this is a concept that doesn't have a definition because it's very hard to find something that captures everything that we call game. Instead, he goes a different direction. So when it comes to sport, what is, what is a sport and why would, uh, why would parkour not count as one? <laughs> well, thanks for this question because I can see that, yeah, you've seen in my book I discussed this case. So I'm a philosopher who, who sort of never thinks of myself as a Wittgensteinian, but I also find myself defending so much of what the late Wittgenstein said. I'm not an essentialist about sport. So an essentialist would be somebody who thought that they, you know, there was an essence to it. There was a feature to it that was definitive of it. Uh, but this, this is a bit complicated because Wittgenstein famously argued that the, the the concept of game didn't have necessary insufficient conditions. He thought it was a family resemblance concept. Well, Bernard Suits in The Grasshopper thinks he can rise to that challenge and provide a definition of game as a voluntary attempt to overcome unnecessary obstacles. So it might look as if Wittgenstein's been answered there. But sport, I think, is not quite the same as game. So there are many voluntary attempts to overcome unnecessary obstacles that are not sports, such as the game of tiddlywinks. And Wittgenstein gives other examples. So what's the difference between sport and game playing? Well, again, this is where I would kind of reassert the late Wittgensteinianism. I don't think it's that sport has a single feature that game doesn't have. You know, it's not, it's not just that you get paid money to play sport and you don't get paid money to play games. I don't think it's anything like that. So what I prefer is an institutional theory of sport. So this this is an idea that some time ago came out of aesthetics because some people hold an institutional theory of art. So they observed that there wasn't much difference between, say, a pile of bricks and a, a work of art. So what made the bricks in the gallery a work of art? Well, it's that it's part of a practice that's, that's sort of validated by the institutions of art. Now, I want to say the same about sport. So I see sport as the institutionalized form of games. And the institutions of sport are things like FIFA, the IOC. But it, it's a, a whole web, including things like players, agents, uh, media companies and so on. And it's ultimately their decision what to validate as sport. So it's like an honorific. It's like a, a status that's bestowed upon a, a certain practice that it's sport. And we're actually seeing this in the case of parkour that you, you've mentioned, that um, there is discussion both within that form of practice and outside it as to whether it should have this status of sport. Um, would it have to do anything in order to acquire that status? Well, one thing it would have to do is kind of submit to the authority of the International Olympic Committee. And there are people who've done that activity who, who think of it as a kind of anti-establishment practice. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a very kind of urban, rebellious kind of thing to do. And they don't want to they don't want it to become institutionalized. Now, if it did, it would open up all sorts of commercial activities, but it might mean that they're forced to wear crash helmets. They're forced to do it on courses, artificially made courses that have been constructed specially in a stadium. Whereas they, they think of it as a kind of it's a sense of freedom. It's a taking back of the urban landscape. So. Parker's a, a really interesting case at the moment for, for anybody who, who who's attracted to that institutional theory of sport because they can see 
we're kind of on the cusp having that debate and and it could go either way it could become a sport or it could just uh, remain as a form of recreation Will you be uh, watching the Olympics coming up uh, at the end of the week? Yeah, well, I, I already watched the Team GB uh, football match yesterday morning when GB played at Chile. So, yeah, I mean, I actually love the Olympics. I, I love the track and field. I love the swimming. Yeah, I, I love the marathon. So I'm, I'm bound to watch it. But, it, yeah, it will be interesting to see whether it is as satisfying a, an experience without spectators. I think they're, they're, they're right not to have spectators. It's, you know, safety has to come first, but I, I think it, it, there's a good chance it will detract from that experience. You've already mentioned a really good philosophy of sport book, The Grasshopper. Is there something else you would recommend to listeners for a better understanding of sport, be it a sort of book or a film even? I recommend a film if people haven't seen it. People of my generation may well have seen it, but there's a 1963 film called This Sporting Life. And there's a couple of reasons I'd recommend it. So it's a film about rugby league, which is a a sport from the north of England. Uh, And it was actually filmed in my home city of Wakefield. Uh, And and it shows the really unpleasant dark side of sport. As as I said, I'm getting a lot more interested in the negative aspects of sport, not not just the positive ones. And it, it shows how the world of sport can be unpleasant, exploitative misogynistic, brutal. So it, it kind of problematises the sport, but it, it does also have quite a, a fun homoerotic scene when the whole team gets in a communal bath together. So, <laughs> so if anybody's not seen that, it's black and white, but it's a real classic. Stephen Munford, thank you very much. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. As always, this podcast was created in partnership with The Philosopher, the UK's longest-running public philosophy journal. Special thanks to Olive Richardson for editing this week's episode. If you enjoyed this episode of The Philosopher in the News, I have a favour to ask you. Please go to Apple Podcasts, the link is in the show notes, and tell me what you liked about it. Your feedback will inform future episodes And it will also help other listeners find the show. I'm Alexis Papazoglu, and this was The Philosopher in the News. Speak again soon.